You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have uh, Gail McIntyre. She's the Chief Scientific Officer at Araviv, A-R-A-V-I-V-E.com. So, Gail, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you. So, tell me, what's the premise of, uh, of Araviv? What's the company about? Well, I, I think, and hopefully you'll appreciate, we have very unique technology. It's clever technology that was licensed from Stanford University. And unlike other companies that are targeting um, cell cell surface receptors, we actually have a technology that that targets a ligand, and it's the sole ligand that binds to axel, which is a tyrosine kinase receptor found on the cell surface. So again, instead of targeting the actual cell surface receptor, we target the gas six, which is the ligand, and we prevent that gas six from binding to axel, the receptor which then means that you don't have all the downstream activation associated with axle activity. So very unique. And the technology involved doing some site-directed mutagenesis to increase the affinity of our protein, which is basically an axle decoy type protein. And that's why it mops up the ligand. And by so a couple, of, chain- a couple sure. of questions in here, a little technical. Um, what what is a ligand versus a uh, receptor? Sure, sure. So a receptor is there are many different types of receptors that are present on the cell surface, and they bind to a protein. Um, and pro- proteins that bind to the cell surface receptor are ligands. So in the case of this particular pathway, I'm discussing gas six and axle. Gas six is a soluble protein that binds to axle which is a cell surface protein. And when GAS6 binds to axle, it basically activates axle. And the activation in the case of axle actually ends up causing the cell to migrate, i.e. move, to invade. It actually, the cells lose their epithelial type phenotype and that's just, uh, and they become more mesenchymal. And that's a bit of a fancy way of saying that the cells are very aggressive and invasive, and they actually just grow into other tissues without any, you know, sense of contact inhibition. So definitely, basically, can become a a cancer type cell. So um, Am I activating uh, this this axle receptor. It it's just one of the is it the predominant way, the only way in which certain cells become cancerous, or just is it one of the ways? But an important step towards that path. Yeah, it's probably one of the ways, but in many types of cancers, um, predominantly resistant type cancers, late 
stage cancers, metastatic cancers, it's probably a pretty a pretty important pathway given the research that we've done. So, for example, in the case of platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, which is the indication that we're studying first, probably more than 90-95% of these patients' tumors actually are highly axle-positive. Um, in renal cell, clear cell, renal cell carcinoma, we know that's, a, that's about 90-95% of the patients' tumors are very highly axle-positive and basically gastric axle-driven tumors. Some of your earlier stage tumors, your, again, more epithelial type tumors, ones that sort of grow in place and are not metastatic, that's sort of the, that's the key word. Once these tumors become metastatic, they're, they're based on our research, they're going to be very highly gastric axle driven. But the ones that are not metastatic yet are probably not, axle's probably not a large player in, in the process. Where, where is this activation happening? Is it inside of a cell? Uh, the oncogenes are expressing and they're causing the cell to turn on this receptor or uh, make it available to this interaction? Or where is this, uh, is it, how does this interaction happen when it doesn't happen normally? Yeah, so it, it, there is some normal processes that um, rely on, on this type of pathway. Um, and it's, it would involve migration and movement of white cells to inflamed areas. But one of the interesting things is, um, there's no mutation involved in either or that we know of in gastric or axle that, that it, you know, is affected. There, it's not a tumor. Uh, it's not an oncogene. It's not a tumor suppressor gene. So it, so it is a protein that, that's probably present on, on a lot of cells. It's just not um, overly expressed and, and the cells aren't really um, dependent on the process. And I should, one thing that would be helpful, I guess, to understand is that this particular pathway and the axle gastric protein um, targets actually came from what they call a lethal screen, and it was a VHL lethal screen in Stanford. And basically what Stanford found is under less than ideal conditions, so hypoxic conditions or low nutrients or low pH, so these are conditions that your cells Aren't re they're not happy with, uh, and so under normal conditions, they won't thrive. But those less than ideal conditions will cause an upregulation in axle. And this is this pathway allows cells to survive under less than ideal conditions. So does, does that help make some sense? Yeah, no, that helps. Um, so you said hypoxia would cause it, so like in a tumor microenvironment, I can exactly. see there would be hypoxia. But what you said also a lack of nutrients, what kind of nutrients? I thought that... Um, a lot of cancer cells yeah. have like damaged mitochondria and they don't do, you know, they don't respire in the same way normal cells do. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, glucose, for example. So one of the areas that we're pursuing is is kidney fibrosis. And so uh, the GAS6 actually acts as a mitogen for mesangial cells, which are cells that are in the kidney and they, they're they very important to the structure of the kidney. And when these cells take over and start growing, um in patients who have IgA nephropathy, you know, they're not, there's, the cells aren't seeing a lot of like glucose or a lot of nutrients. And so um, that would be one example of um, a nutrient deficiency. Okay. So these, this protein gets uh, expressed a lot more frequently on the surface of the cell. And then just opportunistically, that means it's going to be bound or activated a lot more often and cause the cell to grow out of control. Yes. 
It can. Yeah, definitely. And and one thing you brought up a good point that I wanted to elaborate on, um, the tumor microenvironment. Uh, so gas six is actually secreted by the tumor. So it's a way the tumor has for making sure um, that it, it survives. But the tumor actually can also secrete growth factors, um, some of the interleukins, that then have an impact on the white cells in the tumor microenvironment, and that causes the cells in the tumor microenvironment to secrete GAS6, which then feeds itself. So it's sort of a double whammy. So it's a, it's a paracrine, autocrine type of protein and seems to be there to just make sure that that cell survives under less than ideal conditions. And in the case of a cancer cell, it lets it basically go crazy. So again, can you recap what activates when this protein is expressed on the surface of the cell? Does it require it to activate it to then tell the cell, yes, okay, go ahead and start dividing more frequently than you normally were? It doesn't have a huge effect on, on cell division. Again, the impact is more on invasion and migration. Oh, you mean, okay, so if I have a liver cell and somehow it, it migrates near my pancreas, it, it normally won't sit there and start dividing, it, it somehow gets a signal from the ambient that says, this is not your place, move on. Right, right. Or but, it'll have a finite. that's not happening. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, it, it continues. Um, the yeah. cells continue. They don't get those signals to, to stop dividing. They, they're they not, for example, contact inhibited, and so they'll keep but growing over everything. So in, in normal cells, um, if you were to look at, a, if you would take a bunch of normal cells and plate them, fibroblasts, for example, you look at the plate, you see them all, the cells sort of form what you call a monolayer, and they lay down right next to each other, and the cells will grow up towards each other, but they won't grow over each other. In a cancer cell, if you take um, a tumor, a cell that's been sort of, that's no longer contact inhibited, You'll look in a plate in a petri dish, and you'll see these cells growing all on top of each other. They form what's called foci. So they're not contact inhibited, and that's that's one of the the processes the tumor has in terms of just totally migrating, invading, and destroying healthy tissue. How about for the uh, the other tumor cells itself? Is this is this such a um, does it make the cells so competitive, so aggressive that they'll they don't care? They'll just block out every other cell, including the tumor cells themselves? Is that why you get hypoxia or is that, you know, I can see like with normal tissue, there's a mutualism there. You know, the cells work together. They also compete for resources, but they work together. But with um, with cancer cells, it sounds like they're just so aggressive that they don't care about other tissues and they invade them. But are they aggressive to the point where they'll even like hurt their own cell, their own selves, where they still loyal to, I guess for lack of a better word, other tumor cells? Yeah, I don't I don't actually know the answer to that. I would think it's the former, not the latter. Um and not to be too anecdotal here, but I don't know in the old days, I don't know if you heard when you know they the people would say, "Oh, you know, they took out her primary tumor, that you know, that's it. She's going to be in trouble." Because some of the tumors do secrete growth factors that keep um parts of the tumor in check. So, in terms of the mets though, once you get to metastatic disease, the tumor cells, I mean, they just grow all over the place. I don't think there's any loyalty. Okay, so so again, to recap one more time, so this uh, protein's being expressed a lot on the surface of these cells, and that's a signal to you, okay, that we could bind up these proteins and do not allow them to interact with the outside environment. That would uh, keep the cell from being aggressive and 
and going places it's not supposed to go. Is that the, the theory behind this? Yes, yeah. What specifically is being expressed? What's, what's the name of it on the outside surface of the cell? And then what's binding to it? And when that binding happens, then what happens? So, so the axial receptor, which is a tyrosine kinase receptor, is what's expressed on the surface of the cell. And it, it can be upregulated, and there can be a lot of it expressed on, on tumor cells, especially resistant tumor cells. And GAS6 is a soluble protein that binds to that axle. Is that what you're okay. asking? Yep, yep. And once that binding occurs, what happens then? Is that a permanent binding or a temporary one? No, it's, it's, it's not permanent. What typically happens is the first step, for example, is phosphorylation of axle, that, that receptor protein, and, re- and then a lot of activation of a lot of downstream proteins. So, for example, you'll see increases in TGF-beta, PDGF beta, AKT, a lot of proteins that are very well known to be involved in in cancer and fibrosis and and invasion and migration specifically. So you want to cause uh, more binding or less binding? You want to inhibit this binding so that you don't. Get I want to inhibit it. Yeah. yeah so what okay. what our technology does is inhibit it, and you know you can just by making a a protein that's similar to the axle protein that's on the cell surface to try and compete off GAS6, the ligand, to make sure it doesn't bind, it's not enough. There's such a high attraction between the axial cell surface protein and that GAS6 ligand that it, it would be very, it's difficult to compete off. So you couldn't produce an antibody. A lot of people use a monoclonal antibody to try and interfere with a protein-protein interaction. But Monoclonal antibodies actually typically can't be produced at the affinity that naturally occurs between axle and GAS6. So what Stanford did is, again, they looked at the binding between that axle cell surface protein and its ligand GAS6. They found out where in the protein did bind, and then they started making some mutations in in um, the axle protein to say, hey, can we come up with a higher affinity? So a protein that is, is binds to gas the ligand even more tightly than the endogenous of, uh, affinity, and they were able to. So the protein that we have in the clinic binds at a 200-fold higher affinity, so much greater attraction than the wild type. So you can imagine if you put this what we call an axle decoy protein. So it's very much like the axle cell surface receptor, only it's soluble. You flood that into the organism, whether a mouse or a human, and you, our protein's gonna win. It's gonna mop up the gastrics in the system. And then because of the way we engineered the protein, it's going to, that, that, um, that combination, the, or the gas six that it's mopped up, it's gonna just secrete out or get rid of in the system. So the GAS6 is going to get mopped up, so it's not able to bind to axle and start all of these downstream activities, which then would lead to, inv- lead to invasion migration. So by mopping it up, we decrease invasion and migration. And we've seen that in preclinical studies in tumor-bearing mice, where if we can get the serum GAS6 levels such they're not detectable anymore, now we see a nice anti-tumor effect. Oh, you see, so you're trying to do two things. You're trying to bind to the axle 
and bind in such a way that it doesn't activate all these downstream factors we're, and produce them, right? No, no, we're binding gas to oh, no, the ligand, no. so it doesn't. Yeah, so it's not. It's a very, it's very unique. I mean, I mean, so you're taking it out of circulation because you're binding exactly. with it. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, no one else. Now we have the intellectual property. I hope you know pretty much nailed down around targeting the ligand. Not too many. Not a lot of other drugs have targeted the ligand. They have gone mostly for the receptor, but your yeah. point is well taken. You know, if you what you said is true, if you were to target the receptor, you would have to make sure you don't activate the receptor. So, right. one, we had the luxury of being able to increase the affinity um, and actually mop up the ligand. But the other reason this works so well is gastrics is the sole ligand to axel. So there are other Gastics can bind to some other similar proteins to axle, but these other similar proteins have redundant mechanisms. So merely taking gastics away from them won't stop the pathway, but taking gastics away will completely halt the axle signaling and all the downstream activities, which again lead to invasion migration and, and the tumor process, the metastatic but process. But is there any downside, you know, so lowering gastics levels systemically? I mean, is there... I think that might be a downside for normal um, tissue growth and repair and all that. If you lower it too much, question. I mean, yep. yeah, you're attempting to lower it in a, in a local environment, but you know, that's, that's, that seems to be the problem with a lot of these things. It'd be so nice if you could do it locally and not systemically. But have, have you observed well, there's any downside to doing this? No, and there's a there's a there's a lot of information now we have about that, and it's public information. So, number one, there's quite a bit of knockout data. Out there, are you familiar with knockout data? So you can knock out either in the mature organism or in the developing organism. You can very specifically knock out certain proteins and mm, right. okay, and then see what happens, right? What happens when you knock out Axel? And what we've seen when we knock out Axel, well, we haven't done it, but it's out there published, and there are a number of papers now that have done this. If you knock out GAS6 or you knock out Axel, there's actually no abnormal phenotype. The animals, the embryos, they develop, and there, it, there's no lethal effect in these animals. Furthermore, there's no effect in the in the adult organism either. If anything, there may be a positive in that you see a decrease in thrombogenic events under certain circumstances. So there may actually be some sort of advantage. But we've also done tox, toxicology studies. So in order to get into the clinic, you have to do GLP, good laboratory practice, talk studies to support the clinical study that you want to conduct. And we have conducted under a US IND a phase one study in healthy volunteers. And as you might imagine, there aren't too many oncology drugs that can actually be studied in healthy volunteers. But the reason is we went in and we dosed monkeys, um, monkeys there their gastics and their axil are pretty much identical to ours. And our protein binds monkey gastics to the same extent that it binds human gastics. So we did toxicology studies in monkeys, and we were able to dose monkeys at very relatively high doses. Actually, we couldn't go any higher given the concentration of our drug and how long a monkey will sit still for the infusion. And we were able to dose, for example, 150 milligrams per keg every week for four weeks, and we didn't see any adverse effects in our monkey studies 
And in contrast, we knew that five milligrams per kg in a monkey suppressed GAS-6 levels for that dosing interval of one week. So there's a 30-fold margin between what was effective in terms of suppressing the GAS-6 in the monkey and the dose that we could dose in a monkey without any adverse effects. So that's unusual to have an oncology drug that has that kind of margin in the GLP tox arena. And so that allowed us to go into healthy volunteers. And because we have this serum biomarker assay, the, the, the GAS-6 study, and it's a proprietary study that, that we have developed and validated, we were able to go into the healthy volunteer study and look at serum GAS-6 levels and find out in our healthy volunteers at what dose will suppress GAS-6 levels for one to two weeks. And then we took that dose. Um, we made sure, first of all, it was safe, of course. But then that dose, which suppressed um, our healthy volunteer gas six levels over one to two weeks, is what we're now testing in our ovarian cancer study. We're testing a 10 meg per kg every other week dose. And the reason is, number one, going into healthy volunteers lets us get into, um, you know, a more defined oncology study sooner. It also means we're not slowly escalating up across a lot of doses that may not be pharmacologically relevant. So we're now in the clinic in a platinum-resistant ovarian cancer patients with a dose that we know suppresses GAS-6 levels for the two-week dosing interval. And given our preclinical data, as long as we see suppression of GAS-6 in the little tumor-bearing mice, we have the anti-tumor effect. So we're, we figure this is a really good way of really testing our drug. So what happens, though, once you take gas six out of circulation? Do the tumors just stop metastasizing and hang out, or do they actually shrink and die because the, now it's another door closed to them to get nutrients and get oxygen? Yeah, we, they shrink and die. So we've um, tested a number of preclinical models, um, and they, we, you use um, human platinum-resistant ovarian cancer cells, and they're very metastatic cells. You inject them into the peritoneum of a mouse, and they develop in the mouse much like you would the human in that the tumors feed all throughout the peritoneum, so it's a lot like a, a human ovarian cancer. And when we treat these mice, what we find is that 20 to 30% of the animals actually don't have tumors anymore after 21 days. You have to obviously sacrifice the animals and look, look at, open them up and look at the peritoneum and, and look to see if there are any tumors. The control group, i.e. the animals that didn't get our drug, have thousands of tumors. But our animals that were treated with our compound, um, along with, I should say, doxorubicin, actually 20, 30% of those, the combination, actually, um, those animals are cured. Our drug does have single agent efficacy in that model as well, where all 10 of the animals reproducibly have minimal disease. But the combination with doxorubicin or doxo is, is pretty um, phenomenal in that we have 30% cures. So in the trial, does this have to be combined with chemotherapy or is it before chemo, after chemo, or along with it? Along with it. So we're doing it in, in combination. We feel like that is going to be the best benefit for our drug. Again, our drug doesn't have probably a direct anti-proliferative effect. Its effect is greatest on the metastatic processes of the tumor cells. And our preclinical data suggests that in combination with drugs that damage DNA or just generally cytotoxic, 
we should at least be additive to that process. And, and oncology drugs, I mean, or, or treatment is going to be combination. So we are going in combination. Our phase two studies, so any pivotal studies, what we'll do is we'll look at the combination versus um, what we call a placebo arm, but it's not strictly a placebo arm. So if we want to study our drug in combination with paclitaxel, we will look at any uh, pivotal studies. We'll look versus paclitaxel alone. Or in the case of combination with doxo, we'll look um, versus doxo alone. One really important point and something that allows us to look at the combinations is that our our drug is, is a protein. So unlike small drugs, which are metabolized by the liver cytochrome P450 system, so enzymes in the liver, our protein's not going to use that same metabolizing system in the liver as small drugs. So we're not concerned about drug-drug interactions, as you typically would think about, because our protein will just get broken down into its constituent amino acids, and it's just we don't worry about drug-drug interactions. And because we've not seen any toxicity, at least knock on wood until this point, you know, we're not concerned about adding on to any of the toxic effects that you see with chemo. So we just don't have the concerns about drug-drug interactions. Oh, okay. So is this going to be used in patients that have metastatic cancer? Or is it going to be used early on where there's just a primary tumor? Really good question. So right now, given our preclinical data and where we think our drug will have the greatest benefit, we are looking at the platinum-resistant population, so the later-stage population. But as you can imagine, we are talking with internally, and we're also talking with some investigators who may be interested in doing investigator-type sponsored trials because there would be an interest in, in backing up and looking at earlier-stage patients to prevent the metastatic process. Now, in my opinion, this is my personal opinion, I think one day idealistically, our drug could be given in combination with, you know, your typical chemo regimen or whatever you need to treat the primary tumor, but our drug could be given long-term to see if you could prevent that metastatic process that pretty much, and you know, it it occurs in pretty much all, all cancers uh, eventually, you know, the more horrible cancers specifically. So it'd be sort of like a tamoxifen-type compound where it's used more prophylactically to prevent the MET. That's not a study we're undertaking at this point, and we're a small company. That would be a very expensive study, very long-term study. I think ideally, though, that would be the study that someone would want to do in or with our compound. So why, why focus on the later stage? Why not focus early on prevention where it seems like, in general, a lot of things are easier? You know, prevention in this conversation meaning... You know, when there's just a primary tumor, even before chemo, maybe you wouldn't need chemo, possibly. Well, yeah, well, the sad thing is, um, well, again, I don't think we're going to have the dramatic effect on the primary. It is going to be on the metastatic process. But um, so the indication we're in now, unfortunately for the patients, the progression-free survival is three to four months. So, you know, you don't need a large study and you don't need a long duration in order to understand if your drug works. So the first objective for us is to see if our drug is going to work in, um, you know, in, in probably the um, the most realistic setting for our drug. And because we have the preclinical data in which we tested mice, you know, inoculated or injected with platinum-resistant human ovarian cancer cells, and we see such a dramatic effect, that's where we went in the clinic. And that's, again, unfortunately, a pretty short-term study. 
What do you think is, is happening between the primary and the metastatic sites? Do you, do you think that the, uh, the axo protein is being um, expressed more frequently, even on the primary tumor? And because of that, it's, it's allowing those cells to, uh, you know, divide and break off or at least divide those daughter cells now migrating throughout the body and invading? Or you know, do you think the mechanism of action is different in the primary tumor versus the, uh, the passing piece? Um, I don't know for sure, but I think you hit on an interesting point. There have some. There was at least one paper out, and I can't remember the author a while back, that talked about exactly what what you said that that the primary tumor can some of the cells can increase their axial expression. They can break off because they have axial express. They're gonna they're gonna migrate. They're gonna literally move, so they can break off, move, and they they can set up a, a you know a, at another site. Basically, that's your metastatic process. So that probably, you know, that makes sense, and that probably is what's happening. So what's, uh, I know these clinical trials can take a while. How many, how long, and what, what stage are you at? Are you at stage two with the clinical trial, and, you know, when do you expect to see results, and then what's what's next? So we're, we're doing what we call our safety run-in study to the phase two randomized, blinded, controlled portion of the ovarian cancer study. And what we're looking at, we're looking at six patients randomized or not randomized. They're not, it's not a randomized portion. It's a run-in. Six patients given our drug in combination with Doxel and six patients given our drug in combination with Paclitaxel. We have an independent safety data committee that's meeting to review the safety PK and PD data. If they agree those data look satisfactory, then we'll open up and allow for six more patients in each of those cohorts. So we have told um, the public that by Q3 of this year, we expect to be able to announce the safety PK and PD data on the 24 patients that were involved in our in the phase 1B, i.e. safety run-in portion to our phase 2 study. And then we hope to initiate the phase 2 study right after that, which would be the end of this year. Very good. So how can people get more info and, and reach out and uh, ask questions or maybe look at the clinical trial if they're eligible? So clinical, our our study is actually listed on clinicaltrials.gov. And if you do a search on Aravive, the company name, you'll pull up that study. And it, it lists the inclusion exclusion criteria and it lists it, you know, at a high level, the, the study design. Okay, very good. And uh, so Arabi's uh, website and uh, clinicaltrials.gov. So thanks, thanks for coming. I appreciate it, Gail. Thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.